0: Well, we had another good episode, thank god. Whew. That's two so far out of twelve. Not actually the best track record. I'm kidding, some of the previous episodes are just fine and serviceable. It's just a few of them pissed me off. Though that that brings me to an interesting point. See, if you sat down and said, alright, lore... Oh god, that's going to be weird this episode. <laughs> alright, lore runner what did you think of The Big Goodbye? I'd be like, well, I'd say it was about 80%, 90% of a really good episode that I really enjoyed, and about 10% stupid bullcrap I couldn't give a damn about. You know, the whole A-B plot problem I mentioned before. We don't have that problem this time. We have a new and kind of weird and different problem, because um, there's a lot of parts of this episode that are actively bad, and some parts that actively piss me off. Uh, Pretty much everything about the Wesley subplot comes to mind, as well as several aspects of the writing. Now, having researched this episode a little bit... What in the world am I hearing? That plane's really close. Sorry about that, guys. Um, Having researched this episode for for the rumination, I can pretty definitively say now that it's because of the fact that this is effectively two separate scripts. Because sometimes the script is surprisingly subtle and knows what it's doing and how it's doing it in fact most of the stuff specifically regarding lore and data and their interactions is pretty tightly done now the funny part is that's the new stuff that's the stuff they threw together to to finish up the script at the last second because they're having serious issues getting a workable script for what was originally designed which was primarily more centered around another android I'll talk about that in a second and the crystalline entity So they kind of threw in this lore thing, which became the main plot, and that was the good stuff. It's funny how that happens, because so often in fiction, especially in my job in particular, I find myself saying, this game, this movie, this book, this show had issues because of rushed development. I mean, how many times have I said that at this point? How many times has that been true at this point, right? And yet, this is one of those times where the rushed part was actually the better part. So one of the other things I want to mention here, uh, before we really get into it, is that Datalore is one of those interesting episodes that just about everyone tends to like. Obviously there are going to be exceptions to that, but every time I have brought up the statement, I actually like Season 1 reasonably well, ever since I came to that discovery a couple years ago, uh, or four years ago, however long it's been at this point, um, someone invariably has said, well yeah, I could see there's a few good episodes there, like Datalore. Like, almost everyone brings up Datalore as a good Season 1 episode. It's it's one of the most commonly brought up episodes when it comes to quality this early on. I find it interesting that it has stuck in everyone's memory so long and so far. I think that says a lot about the strength of the lore character himself. God, this is just going to be a weird episode to talk about. Every time I say that word, I'm like, eh. Because, if you think about it, Lore's only in three episodes. Four if you want to pull it technically. But really, three. This one, Brothers, and Descent. And that's it. Those are the only Lore episodes in the whole series. And yet, he is still considered one of the better characters, as far as guest stars or secondary characters, and someone who most people speak positively of every time he shows up. And all three of those episodes are generally praised for their overall quality. So... I think a lot of that rests squarely on Brent Spiner. Now, this is an interesting statement because as I've actually already talked about at this point in history, I do think Brent Spiner has deliberately, or I shouldn't say deliberately, directly contributed to certain bad elements of Data as a character in the movies about how Data himself uh, was growing, for lack of a better term, and how if you pay attention to Generations, First Contact, Insurrection, and Nemesis, Data is literally portrayed almost completely differently in all four epi- or all four movies, and a lot of that has to do with Brent Spiner. But, I will also say that Brent Spiner really knows his stuff when it comes to certain things, most notably, his character of Data, and soon, actually, as we'll find out later, And, of course, lore. Now, I bring this up because I I don't know how many of you have heard of this before, so forgive me if this is like me saying that water is wet. But for those of you unaware of this fact, the original script... Remember, this episode was supposed to happen uh, earlier in the season than now. Uh, The original script for this episode... I still can't believe I'm even saying this, this is such a stupid idea, was to have it be a female android who was designed to be a love interest for Data. Data, in Season 1, was supposed to have a love interest android. Thankfully, Spiner himself torpedoed the crap out of that idea. He didn't really have the kind of political sway to really do anything about it. But he talked to the people that he needed to talk to, and convinced the people he needed to convince that that wasn't a good idea. And instead we get the lore idea, Data's brother, which Spiner himself pretty much volunteered to play. Now, that was a critical point, because most actors, believe it or not, don't actually like doing what Spiner does with lore and Data. Playing playing character A who is playing off of character B, which is a performance you either gave earlier or are giving later. It's harder to do than it sounds, and it's a thing a lot of actors don't like doing, especially since many actors, and I mean no offense by this, have problems shifting characters like that. Like, most actors put themselves so far into the zone of insert character A, that they don't want to then immediately lurch themselves out of that zone to play character B, and then lurch themselves back the next day to play character A, and so forth and so on. So Spiner agreeing to that helped really push the red tape on that one forward. Now this is funny because all of this means that this episode was perceived as something that was just going to kind of flop. They were having script issues; they couldn't really get things together. They didn't really know what they're going with. Uh, this is actually the last script uh, Roddenberry worked on, I do believe, before he had to you know, make take more of a back seat to affairs. And uh, and and I'll talk about Roddenberry's com- contribution in a bit. And I hate myself, but it's going to be a negative thing. I'm sorry. Um, and, then, and then, you know, they were like, okay, this is just a mess. And then they delayed production. So they tossed this off to, and I wrote down his name, Rob Bowman, who's a decent TNG uh, director. I haven't mentioned him all that often, not in the same category as most of the other directors I've brought up. But he does some good stuff, and I like his mentality. Because his overall approach was, and, and I've I've seen his interview about this, where he was like, alright, you've given me the hard episode that's supposed to fail. I'm going to make it frickin' succeed. And given the fact that, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of people, to this very day, tend to think of Datalore as a good episode, I'd say he succeeded. So, um, let's talk about this episode, okay? Now, I, I want to get this out at, right at the beginning. I like this episode, too, okay? I do. I enjoyed re-watching this episode. But there's certain parts of the script that just had me going, Huh? Let me start with one. I've had this impression, really going through with Analysis Mode on in Season 1 TNG, that S- Starfleet isn't a military. Or an organization. Or anything professional whatsoever. It feels like a club for high schoolers who just kind of go and do things because they're neat. And I guess I do mean that as an insult, but do you understand at all what I mean by that, by that impression? Because so many of the things they do in early season one, and this this is true for a little bit, this really didn't really stop being a problem universally until about season three. But, you know, for, for a lot of early TNG, it just feels like they're just kind of out in their dad's, wagon that they, they happen to borrow, and, and they're off just exploring the backyard kind of a thing. You know, no real professionalism, no real strength of character, no real backing of a massive fleet or an extremely technologically advanced, hugely resource-abundant federation. You know, no none of the things that logically speaking we know exist at this point in history that haven't been established yet in the show. You know, none of that. Just feels like some kids out in a, 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 van. There we go. It's a bunch of kids out in their dad's old van, just cruising. <laughs> you know? Let me give you an example of this. I mean, I've felt this way the whole of season one so far. But one of the biggest things is that even in this episode, they established that data was picked up on Omicron Persei Eight, or whatever the hell the planet is—Omicron Theta something. I don't know. There's too many Omicron planets. Um, they picked up on this. He's picked up on this planet twenty-six years ago now I know I do this a lot in my show but I do it for a reason I want you to picture 26 years ago right now okay can you do that for me I want you to picture 1991 which would be what it is for uh, actually I guess it'd be 1992 cuz it's January now but whatever you get the point right 91 92 whenever you're actually watching this video 26 years. That is an insane amount of time. That is a huge breadth of time. How much has changed in this world? In 1991, the internet barely existed. I mean, it did exist, but not in the sense that we think of it today. <laughs> think about what was different in television at that point. In fact, this episode—this 1991 was just a few years after this episode came out. You know, <laughs> that's how old we're talking here. That's how long. That's it's a huge period of time, and in twenty-six years, Starfleet has never gone back to this colony, which went dark. I want to remind you there were two reasons they would have to go back here: data was found here, which I'd think would be a big fricking point and reason for it, and there was a colony here, and there isn't any more. Nothing. Nothing. Okay, we'll just leave that alone for two and a half decades. But then, then, so, uh, they talk about how there was farmland when Data was found, but no people, obviously, because they didn't interact with any. People who are smarter than me have dissected the information in this episode, in Brothers, and in uh, Inheritance to try and figure out the exact timeline of events. No matter how you look at it, it doesn't actually make sense, and these events do not line up. Because even if we're just to take it on the face, so soon, this scientist who is so well-known that even Tasha, a security chief, knows him the moment that his name is mentioned. Just that, that well-known and renowned of a scientist. That'll come up later, by the way. He goes missing ends up on this colony in his fake name, builds Lore, succeeds, oh my god, he makes Lore, that's incredible. And then Lore causes issues, but in the course of this, Lore successfully contacts the Crystalline Entity, and then summons him to the colony. Now, he states that he earns the, the thing's gratitude, and yet he is already sealed away, and has been sealed away, since before they even really started working on data so there's we already have our first timeline bump here then they start working on data then they successfully build data and then the crystalline entity attacks and so they decide to leave lore locked away in storage in the safe area drag data outside so he can lay there in the dirt and then flee the colony and and of course soong and his wife flee the colony and in this desperate and dire situation Sung then Well, you know what, I'm not even going to talk about that. Let's just say that his next leap in androids is actually kind of insane. We'll get there when we get there. And all of this... And then after all of these events, no one... No distress calls? Oh, actually, that's not true. There was a beacon. That's what what brought them originally to this planet to find data. So, and in fact, based on the timeline, and I looked this up, it's the same year as when the colony was attacked, that they came and picked up data, within months by all accounts. So obviously they did detect the beacon and came, but then why would there be farmlands? Granted, they hadn't really designed the crystalline entity yet, but we do see what this thing can and does do later, and it is implied what this thing can do in this episode. No life. Not even bacteria. So how was there farmland? Anyways, so, (laughs) also, while I'm on the subject, this brilliant scientist who, again, is so well-known that 26 years later, Tasha can recognize him on the moment he's mentioned, as can Riker, of course, this brilliant, well-renowned scientist vanishes and then within a few years, a Starfleet team mysteriously finds what will eventually be called a S'ung android. Now, that's already suspicious. But, okay, I could see how some people might not put two and two together on that. Except for the fact that we know, for a fact, that Data was designed to look just like S'ung. Brent Spiner does play uh, Noonien S'ung after all. He even plays his ancestor back in Enterprise. So, um, how did nobody in all of the scientific community, and you can't tell me, they brought a sentient, sapient android back to Federation territory, back to Federation headquarters, and didn't have some brilliant scientists crawling all over him, probably literally, (laughs) and how did none of those people say, man, you look a lot like Noonien Sung? Nope. Never even came up, because... Hey, man, we're going to go hit the 7-Up after this. Yeah, You want to get something? Ooh, dude, we should go hit Del Taco. Oh, man, I'm totally going for some Del Taco. Let's ride! <sighs> Starfleet. Anyways, so... Um... Uh... You know what? I'm sorry. I actually, I, 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 was, I thought I was done. I'm looking at my notes here. I'm sorry. I've got one more thing to talk about on this point. 26 years. I hate to rehash that point. The Enterprise happens to be in the area and is like, we can spare a couple hours. So they spare a couple hours and in a couple of hours, find the hidden facility, all the information, data, drawings that are within, and find lore in hours. Now, you could argue they had the benefit of having Data and Jordy with them, and I'll acquiesce to that. But that just means that it would take a less experienced or less equipped team longer to accomplish the same thing. (laughs) Anyways, Uh, I just wanted to point it out, uh, Argyle, Chief Engineer Argyle is back. In his his weird pseudo cameo thing, I really want to know i've I've dug into this and I haven't found any actual answers as to why they didn't have a chief engineer character in this show. The nearest answer I could come up with, and this was just speculation on behalf of one of the actors, was that they were trying they were pushing away from the star Trek the original series format and if you remember, there were several strong character archetypes there you know we had the communications person, we had the captain we had the this first officer who was also the science officer, the doctor, the engineer, the helmsman the I guess tactical would be what Sulu would qualify as there. You know, we had several archetypes. And if you actually look at TNG, they don't fall into those same archetypes. You know, we have the captain, then we have the first officer, then we have the second officer who's the science officer, we have the counselor, we have the doctor. Uh, we don't actually really have a chief engineer yet, not really. Um, we don't, the closest thing we have to a regular helmsman is Geordie, which is just weird. And the closest thing we have to ops is data or Wesley, which is even weirder. Then we have two security people, both Worf and Tasha, which makes a degree of sense, but I'll talk about that when we get to Season 2, actually. And so, you know, so you can see how it doesn't line up correctly. But that's the closest explanation I've ever gotten for why Chief Engineer wasn't one of the original things. Obviously, they changed their mind on this, and Chief Engineer became a regular uh, archetype in Star Trek, since... I think every Star Trek show has had the chief engineer type, although I haven't seen Discovery still, so maybe maybe it's not on there. I don't know. Anyways. <clears throat> so they're like, Okay, we, we're stupid and we're dumb, but we found lore. There's a good scene shortly after that. It's it's still not great, because it's like they call Data up, then they have what is effectively like a three-minute meeting, and then they send Data back down. It's like, what the hell, guys? But uh, I do like the fact that Riker and, uh, I think it's Geordi, and Picard are there, and they're uncomfortable talking about this. And I like that! It's astonishingly human for such early TNG work. And then Picard drags it out in the open says, Look, this is what we're embarrassed about. Okay? Let's acknowledge it, and let's just move on. I want to do a plot. I was like, Yes! Yes, that's great! That's awesome! That's perfect! That's exactly what it should be. And then he goes back down to... To... To, uh... Sickbay to help reconnect lore and blah, blah, blah. Now... I mentioned that parts of this episode were actually really well done, and it really is everything regarding lore in particular. Three times, specifically, in, during the course of the episode, before it's revealed that lore's evil, da, da, da. but three times uh, it comes up, you, you see an insight into lore's mentality. Now, I understand this insight because, or I understand this mentality because I have this mentality, too please don't think I'm evil, but I have a habit based on mistrust, basically, to not reveal the full capacity of what I can do, what I know, or what I perceive. The general idea is, is it's classic, you know, textbook tactical mindset. The idea is that the less the enemy knows of you, the better a position you are in. Makes sense, right? I mean, in a battle, if you have a whole other battalion over here that the enemy doesn't even know about, you are in a hugely advantageous position, right? Well, this can apply to social dynamics as well. Now, the flaw in that comes down to the fact that you are referring to other people, usually strangers, as the enemy. Now, As I said, in my case, I freely admit this is mostly a trust issue. I tend to not trust people I just meet, so I tend to treat them as if they are my enemy in order to be safe about that. You may feel free to make fun of me if you want to. It's perfectly valid. But here, well, we know exactly how Lore's doing this, and Lore's doing this for an additional reason, which isn't even on my table. That is to manipulate. He deliberately wants people to underestimate him so that he can take greater advantage of them. That kind of manipulative, uh, I don't have a better word for that, actually, you know, that kind of conniving, deception-y kind of a thing that he does for the explicit purpose of taking advantage of others. Now, what I love about it, though, is in each case, he doesn't do it flawlessly. Now, my favorite example is the very first one. They talk about how they've reconnected Lore, but there's no sign of anything. Now, based on events, I could say with near total certainty that what happened was Laura was reconnected and kept his damn mouth shut and kept his eyes closed and listened and paid attention. Wouldn't you? Remember, the last thing he would remember would be being shut down by the colonists. And God knows how they even managed to accomplish that given, you know, the fact that it's Laura and he has no problem killing people. So, being reactivated, he's in an unknown situation. So, he stays quiet. Whoops. He stays quiet about the whole thing and is like, you know, I'm, I'm going to try and see, seek out. So this isn't really an evil thing, except then the thing that prompts him to speak is his pride. Because, and this will be one of the biggest character traits of lore in, in all three episodes that he's in, his ego is overwhelming. He can't stand the idea of someone mentioning, oh, I wonder which one was first, and not leaping forward, it was me, it was me, I'm better, I'm better. He even lies about it in order to make himself feel feel better about the whole thing. The second time is the obvious one. This one's really obvious. Everyone knows this. It's the one where they're explaining to him extremely basic geometry, the kind of stuff that I'm pretty sure my niece would know. And he's acting like it's some big revelation. Then Riker just casually says, so, and Pythagorean's Theorem is, and then d- and Lore automatically, again, pride, sneaks in and is like, oh, yeah, oh, crap. Riker catches him on that. I want you to remember that, by the way. Riker notices, basically traps Lore, sets a little verbal trap, and Lore falls right into it. So Riker actually outmaneuvers him there. Just keep that in mind, okay? It, it's, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Um, and then, uh, I I just have to give huge props to the composite shots they did with Brent Spiner acting against Brent Spiner. Um, they they pull off some tricks that are actually legitimately amazing for the time. If you haven't seen the original DVDs, it's not quite as impressive because they clean it up a little on the Blu-rays, but it is still very impressive for late 80s. In particular, there's a scene where Lore puts down a glass, and a few seconds later, Data picks up a glass and drinks from it. And by all accounts, it's the same glass. Very nicely done shots. I I, I know it's not often I, I comment on the graphics or the effects, but I think they did a great job of it for the time, especially the Crystalline Entity. Several people commented on the Crystalline Entity's graphics, and I'm going to talk about them here, and I'm going to talk about the actual Entity later. I want to talk about it here because at the time, the people who made this thing and the people who were working on it were not what you'd call super impressed. It's was like, yeah, okay, and? I don't agree. I was exceptionally impressed when I first saw this thing on TV and when I saw it on the DVDs. Now, the Blu-ray version is massively touched up and looks absolutely amazing. So credit where credit is due. They actually had to remake the thing from scratch because they didn't have any of the base original files. Uh, But obviously, even the original was CGI. Think about that for a moment. Late 80s, CGI. CGI in general was just barely starting to to be a thing in terms of graphics that are utilized in fiction. And I thought they did a fantastic job of it. This is not the actual first CGI that Star Trek has used, but it might as well be. It's the first real foray into that and and would kind of lead to sort of a rocky relationship with CGI right up until about Voyager, uh, mid-Voyager, and most of Enterprise, where they would start using CGI regularly instead of relying so heavily on models. So, they did the composite. Um ron jones did the music of this episode and it's one of those things i've mentioned this before i can instantly identify his music there's such a uh, style to his music because he knows how to look at a scene and say i want this scene to make the user feel bleh you know whatever emotion is he wants and that's that's what ron jones is good at pulling a specific emotion out of music and letting you feel it there's two great examples of this one is when data and lore are first talking to each other the music is what I wrote down here. It's, it's pseudo-tense. I, I was stuttering there because I was debating if there was a better way to put it, but I can't think of one. It's not quite just full-on tension. It's almost kind of odd, but that's the whole point. Lore comes off as someone who is clearly manipulative, but not actually villainous yet. It's not until he starts reading through the files that it, that it be, the music starts going into this is a bad thing happening. The whole thing is just this weird sort of I'm not sure what to make of this situation. And I do like, by the way, the fact that D- Data and Lore's conversation back and forth, by the way, is great. Very well written. But I do like how Lore is fairly obvious in his overall presentation of what he wants and how he wants it. But then when Data... Basically, Data calls him out on several things, catches him, catches him in lies and catches him in deceptions, and Lore is like... (laughs) And each time, you could tell that despite his vocal praise, Lore's irritated. Remember, one of Lore's biggest character traits is his pride, and honestly, Data is, in several ways, better than lore and i don't just I, I i'm not even talking about morally or ethically data has in my opinion a far more keen and precise mind and the capability to use it better than lore does um, i admit i don't have a lot of evidence evidence to to support that but the episode brothers and the episode descent both seem to to agree with that general mentality so data catches him and Lore's just uh, uh, I often wonder what Lore's long-term plan was for Data. Because he, sh- he shuts him off, and then what? I mean, obviously, he wanted to kill everyone on the, on the crew, but that wouldn't affect him or Data. Would he try to reprogram him? Would he try to convince him to join him? I'm really curious. Anyways, so, <clears throat> so then, <laughs> then Tasha asks, should we trust Data? Now, that is the correct question to ask, especially from the security chief. In private. This is such a basic thing that I'm, I'm actually astonished that they put this in the episode. This is the kind of thing that is normal for a fast food restaurant, let alone a bridge of a starship. If you don't know what I'm talking about, if you have a serious concern about someone else, what you do not do is go out in front of everyone, most notably their co-workers and or friends, and say in front of everyone, Hey! Should I trust this guy anymore? Do I, I mean, this guy did this thing, and I'm not sure about it. No. That's actually the third step. <laughs> like, if things escalate, yeah, sure, call him out in public. But basic decency, never mind protocol, indicates that you go outside quietly with the captain and say, Captain, do you think we should really trust him anymore, given the circumstances? And then Picard would say, yes, I do. Thank you very much for your concerns. And that's all they had to do for that. The whole scene feels like filler anyways. Why not had a few extra seconds of them going into his room and Tasha bringing her concerns and then Picard acknowledging them properly, right? I don't know. Anyways, so then, I, I, I put another note here. I just got to rehash. The, the putting down the glass and picking up the glass scene, I'm really amazed how they pulled that off. So, I also have to bring up something. Lore is gloating to Data, and one of the things he mentions is, "Can you imagine how grateful the crystal this is?" As paraphrased, "How grateful the crystalline entity will be if I give it the, the the life of all the people on this crew." Now, that always bothered me, even as a kid. My first reaction was, "What the hell can that thing do for you?" Now, then I saw the episode uh, "Silicon Avatar," I believe. And then I, the questions just got weirder because we learned more about how the, the crystallinity worked. And it's like, well, that makes even less sense now. What exactly were you getting out of this arrangement, Lore? A pet bulldog that can kill whoever you pointed at? Because that's all I ever came up with. If you guys ever have any thoughts on that, please feel free to share. I mean, I, I'm just going to go ahead and segue into this. This is uh, very Roddenberry. And I'm s so, I am i actually am groaning here. Like I said, this was his last real influence as far as any script, as far as Star Trek is concerned. Um and the Crystalline Entity was one of his ideas, and a lot of the parts of its construction feel like his style. Ronberry was really, really good with coming up with ideas, and I will always credit him for that. Um The problem is he was terrible at figuring out how and why and where and when regarding those ideas. The crystalline entity itself is a good example of something that makes no damn sense when you really sit back and think about it. This is something that is legitimately Cthulhu-esque. This is something that is a horrific monstrous nightmare. And yet we only ever see it twice. Ever. And There's no questions really answered about how it functions or thinks, other than the fact that it does have the ability to communicate and understand communication. That's all we've got for this thing. And that's my point. Too much of this thing's construction needs work to make it really function within a setting. I'm sorry, but any setting in which this thing and the rate at which it consumes is going to have some very serious issues very soon, especially when two full quadrants of the galaxy are already basically fully settled at this point in time. I mean, I I know it's more than two quadrants, but you get the point, right? But no, it's just there's a crystalline entity, and Lore's whole thing with it. This is let me. This is why I want to explain this here, because the. The surface idea here is data is not, excuse me, Lore is not organic. The crystalline entity eats organic, therefore the two can partner. Okay, that makes sense. Now, you need to go more than that. You need to keep going. What's the partnership benefit for Lore? What kind of methods by which do they communicate? How did Lore find this thing even existed? How did he learn to communicate with it? Why did he learn to communicate with it? Where did this thing come from? Is it the only one of its kind? Are there? Does it have a method by which it can reproduce? Um, how does it? You know, question after question after question, and none of them are ever answered. I know that sometimes in fiction, leaving things unanswered can be a good thing, but all I think of when I stare at the crystalline entity and its relationship with lore is, huh? And so I tend to just kind of hand wave it away because it basically doesn't fit. It's like you got it, it. This is a stretched analogy, but it's like you've got a puzzle and you've got a puzzle piece from another puzzle, and it's like, well, this doesn't go anywhere. Fling. Anyways, so I'm still with this episode. I really am. I, it's despite the writing problems despite the fact that starfleet is pathetic i'm still with this episode and then the wesley scene start i imagine most people who haven't even seen the next generation as a whole who haven't actually sat down and watched the show have seen a clip or a gif or a, a little flash animation or even the sound bite of shut up wesley that comes from this episode I can't put into words how stupid the construction of events are because Wesley raises some concerns. Everyone ignores him and, in fact, acts like he's being a prat, which, admittedly, his attitude does need some help. However, in this case, this is a very clear example of the Nickelodeon plot is what I like to think of this as. Now, I imagine some of you didn't actually have Nickelodeon when you were kids. Uh, The premise of the plot is this. The kids have a brain, and know what they're doing. The adults are stupid, and are usually an obstacle to things getting better. That's a Nickelodeon plot. It has been in many, many, many cartoons, and plenty of movies, and plenty of shows. And so a Nickelodeon plot ensues, because, and I want to stress this, Wesley raises some concerns about Data. Picard shuts him down. Riker shuts him down, but then... Just to be sure, go ahead and go. Go ahead and go examine Lore, and then okay, fine. And then Lore goes in and gives the most ham-fistedly stupid play. I don't even I don't know what to call it. Fake presentation of of the of the the switch and the fact that that one down there, as he's literally like manhandling the body. Like, oh my god, Lore has become upset. He senses your presence. And then Riker rushes out with Wesley. And then, now, what I first thought was going to happen was Riker was going to go straight to the bridge with Wesley and say, Wesley was right, there's something going on with Data or Lore. I don't know if he's infected or if it's just Lore pretending to be him, but this needs to be fixed right now, sir. Instead, what Riker does is goes to the bridge and says, It was Lore, sir. He's got the same facial twitch as ever, and he he sensed the boy, and everything was wrong. What? I remind you, Riker was the one who caught Lore in a lie, a deception, actually, earlier. Remember? I asked you to remember that point, because it was important. But no, no one of the most flagrantly stupid deceptions I have ever seen in Star Trek, and that is saying something, managed to fool Riker. And then Wesley pushes the issue, and then Picard says, shut up, Wesley. Then Wesley pushes the issue, and then Beverly says, shut up, Wesley. Then he gets the hell off the bridge and basically drags his mother to Data's room. Now, I want to point out That And this is, again, very Nickelodeon-y here. If he hadn't basically forced his mother to go in and check on the real data, they probably would have all died. So yes, we also have a Wesley saves the ship plot, in addition to the fact that we have the adults all being blithering idiots. Gotta be honest, this that whole sequence of events aggravated me so much, I wanted to just skip through it. But anyways... So then, uh, we have a brief fight, which is actually kind of a cool scene between Worf and Data. Now, obviously, excuse me, between Worf and Lore. Obviously, Worf should lose to Lore. That makes sense. Um, it's just a shame, because I feel like this is actually the beginning of the trend. Up until now, Worf's only really lost two fights. One against the Q pig French things in Hayden uh, uh, Q, or whichever one that was. And then here against Lore. Now, these are two vastly superior opponents. I mean, he, there was no way he was going to basically beat Q, right? And Lore is faster and smarter and stronger, so he's not going to beat him either. I feel like somewhere along the line, someone latched onto the idea of Worf losing and thus created the Worf effect, which I will discuss more when it actually comes up in relevance later, so we'll get to that. But I think that's, this is where that really got started. Um, so then there's a scene where Crusher has a phaser on Lore. Now I know that Lore's super fast and I know he's super strong, but he spends several seconds doing a distraction and then grabbing the thing and then grabbing the phaser away. At no point does she depress the fire button. Keep in mind that whatever you might say about Crusher and her motherly, or excuse me, wrong wrong thing, her, her doctor's mentality, she's a mother before she's a doctor, and so she probably wouldn't hesitate to literally destroy Lore in order to save her son. Now, despite the stupidity of that and it is kind of stupid and the stupidity of the fact that it is until everything's resolved that the security team shows up which is also stupid i do like this final confrontation between lore and data mostly because it's a good chance for lore to just kind of do his thing oh and i didn't really mention this earlier but i want to give again praise to brent spiner Uh, he does something that i actually praised in the previous episode the big goodbye uh, with regards to to gates mcfadden Brent Spiner plays Data, Lore, and Lore-playing-Data in this episode. And there is a distinct difference between the way he plays Data, the way he plays Lore, and the way he plays Lore-playing-Data. It's a nice touch. It's a little subtle here and now. And I do like it, and it definitely deserves praise. So then he gets beamed out into space, where he will eventually be picked up by Packleds. I don't know about you guys, but I like to think that those Packleds are all very, very dead. <laughs> a happy ending for everyone! I hope you've enjoyed, guys. I'll see you next time.